It's good for the planet because birds make it. For the best prices on bird gas, go to Otto's Corners. Let Lionel rotate your tires. A free rotation with every fill-up. KGLO, Linear Valley. Creatures in the Star Wars universe, who would you pick to be your roadie? I wish I could give a deep cut answer, honestly, but I'll probably just go with uh, I'll go with the obvious one and say Chewbacca, but with the caveat that obviously Watto, Yoda, several of the Porgs, they're all in the band, uh, so Chewbacca is you know the roadie. That's a good answer. I th- I think my dream he wouldn't necessarily be my roadie, but I would love nothing more than to be in a band with our own king Max Rebo. Oh on shit! Keys. I, yes, <laughs> he's like my favorite dude in Star Wars. He's on screen for like five seconds, but I'd go with him. I, yeah, I, of course. <laughs> <laughs> host and we are back we want to send a quick thank you out to jim hickox jason mike Litch, and rob christopher for taking over the last week's episode they talked about david lynch's wild at heart and lost highway jim hickox filled in his host and it was an absolute blast to listen to them normally you can catch jason and jim on synesthesia which bennett i think you'll agree is probably the finest film podcast out there yeah yeah, yeah. definitely uh definitely up there P- pretty darn good on that note, though, we do want to send a quick congratulations to Rob for landing a streaming deal with Fandor. You can watch Roy's World, Barry Gifford, Chicago, starting October 18th on Fandor. It's a really cool movie. It's jazzy. And yeah, it's a film you will want to catch. But today, we are back to talk about one of the all-time great songwriters, but we're looking at one of his secondary careers in an alternate persona. It's Neil Young Day. And we're going to go head first into the films of Bernard Shakey. So we originally planned to put two concert films head to head. We were thinking maybe You're the Horse with Jim Jarmusch to tie into a previous episode. But we had better ideas with another movie. So the concert film we're talking about today is often regarded as one of the finest around. The other one has a historic reputation as being an incoherent mess where Dennis Hopper fed raccoons on set and sent a fellow actor to the hospital with a knife wound. So, I'll let you figure out which one is which. But, we flew in the experts today to the split-tooth compound, so let's hear from them. Bennett, you're back again. What's new with you? Oh, not too much. It's uh, it's hot as hell here yeah, uh, in Philly. Here, here too. You've heard. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a weather emergency, which is actually called a Code Red. Um, which has been going on for like a little over a week. But, uh, hey, I'm just trying to rock in the free world over here, Craig. Hey. Hey, see what I did? <laughs> I mean, tonight's the night to pull all the references out. 
silence. <laughs> no, I got it. I, I got it. Thank you, That's team. Yeah. <laughs> All right, making her split picks debut is Brianna McCann. Brianna, how you doing? Good. I'm doing great. Very excited to be here with both of you. Good. How's uh, how are things in Monkey Land? They're going very well. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. She recently wrote about the monkeys film Head, and uh, it was shared by none other than Mickey Dolenz himself. It's a very good article about a very good film. Brianna, do you want to just give us a quick little background in the head and what stands out to you about that weird and wonderful film? Yeah, absolutely. I think that honestly ties in well with, with talking about Human Highway and Neil making weird movies. So, you know, as it comes to musicians making very weird and coherent movies, you know, probably the the pantheon of that is Head by the Monkees um, that ends up being... You know, if you just kind of watch it without much context, it, you're like, this is just, this is a drug-fueled fever dream. But with the context of, you know, monkeys trying to break out of, of personas they were given publicly, it becomes this really biting satire on fame and the roles they were forced to play. Um, and the same is true for their producer, Bob Rafelson, who directs the film and, and ends up kind of making it his own commentary, too. So really rich film, highly recommended. Yes, it's it's a great one. And Bob Rafelson recently passed away, which is part of the reason why we had you write about it. So we're diving into Neil Young here. I want to lead with a quick quote. Bennett, you and I, have, I think we've both been reading Shaky by Jimmy McDonough. And there's a quote in here that I want to lead with, and then I'm going to ask a question. So Jimmy writes, One thing Neil Young is not is predictable. For better or worse, Neil Young has done it his way. It's a theme that comes up frequently with Neil Young because he's always changing, he's following whims that interest him, and he's always trying to chase his muse. There are hits, flops, and outright failures, and each has their own dedicated fan bases. So I have a friend who once joked that the best question you can ask to define a friendship is this. What are your 12 favorite Neil Young albums? <laughs> You know, I was trying to figure this out, and he is—he's definitely one of those artists. I, um, you know, I knew him from like classic rock radio, and from like you know my parents. My parents were not big like CD people; they had like compilations or like greatest hits mostly. But um, you know, so they had that 04 greatest hits. He was not a guy that I really dove into that much until like the pandemic. I'd always kind of, for some reason, he occupied a similar spot in my head as like Bruce Springsteen. I think just because my dad liked both, and they were two people who you know I sort of got into through him, but. In listening to him over the last like two and a half years, it's become clear that he's way, and, and I, Bruce is great. I love Bruce. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I have nothing but affection for Bruce, but I realize Neil is definitely more in the ballpark of someone like Bob Dylan, who in addition, to, both in the sense that they're just continually like reinventing themselves, they've kind of refused to become nostalgia acts. And when you're talking about them, any discussion of like best song, and Bruce is in this class too, any discussion of best song is, you know, a discussion of top 10, any discussion of best albums is at least like top five. Just, uh, you know, to name a few that are great off the top of my head. Um, I love trans, kind of a, a polarizing one. Um, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere is incredible. Um, obviously, you're not having a bad time with that to the gold rush. Uh, Russ Never Sleeps is an easy answer for favorite because uh, you get to see kind of everything he does well. American Stars and Bars, classic. Uh, Lenoise, more recently, is a lot of fun. I mean, there are, few, there are very few albums of his that, like, are totally wall-to-wall not good. I think Landing on Water is the only one that... Um, I would never throw on. Um, and I've never listened to his Pearl Jam collaborations, I must admit, because I really can't stomach Pearl Jam. I haven't either. 
if I if you like put a gun to my head and told me to name my favorite Neil Young album, it would probably be after the Gold Rush. But you know, I think on the beach is one that I absolutely love. Um, you know, his his self titled debut is spectacular. Of course, you know, there's Harvest in there as well. Um, the I think the album itself is called This Notes for You, but which, whichever album that one's on where he goes kind of like jazzy out of nowhere, I think that's spectacular. I actually liked his one album with Pearl Jam, uh, Mirrorball, I think it's called. Like, I enjoyed I that. I should give it a chance. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if, you don't, if you don't like Pearl Jam, I mean, then I can understand why you wouldn't do it. But also I will say, like, you can't really tell. So, you know, I, I, would, I would still recommend it. It's more along the lines of, like the crazy horse kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, you really can't, I don't think there's any Neil Young album that doesn't have some level of merit to it. There are some that maybe are, are less than others, but. <laughs> Even uh, Everybody's Rockin', which he, you know, is trolling, is yes. great. Uh, has, <laughs> has some great, great songs, uh, you know, as, as much as it's a bit, there's, you know, it's suffused with affection for the music. And uh, I don't know, Wonder End is a great song, and it's fun hearing that version of it. <laughs> More people should do covers of themselves in like different genres. Yes, agreed. Well, you both passed the test. The secret answer is if you try to answer, you're worth being friends with. If you can list 12, you're good. If you have 12, like, in order, I did that. Uh, you're probably cool. <laughs> What's your number seven? Number seven, I have Harvest Moon. Mm. Oh, I, I didn't even mention Tonight's the Night or Time Fades Away. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, two that, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't change a second of, yeah. Let's get down to business here. So we're talking about the films of Bernard Shakey today. We've got Rust Never Sleeps. We've got Human Highway. Normally with these episodes, I feel like one person takes a movie, but this one, I think we all kind of just love both. So I'm just going to say a movie title and one of you can start talking. We're going to be talking about Rust Never Sleeps today. Who wants to give a quick intro to that one? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can take that one. Yeah, Rust Never Sleeps is uh, a concert film basically coinciding with the live Rust album. It's, you know, uh, basically a filmed uh, concert from that tour. So uh, all of the kind of crazy theatrical stuff that Neil did on that tour, um, including uh, giant equipment, uh, giant microphones, a giant harmonica, and uh, most notably the uh, road crew dressed as uh, road eyes, which is all we'll call them to avoid lawsuits from uh, Disney, uh, dressed like certain critters from the uh, Star Wars universe with uh, glowing red eyes, um, which, yeah, I, I knew nothing about the movie going in other than that it was a filmed version of a concert from that tour. Um, so that stuff was all a surprise to me. And uh, I just instantly fell in love with it. You know, I knew Neil Young through the music. Would not have guessed that he was a funny guy. Would not have guessed that he had a sense of humor, really, from the songs, um, for the most part. And um, yeah, I don't know, watching Russ Never Sleeps, you realize he is uh, a guy with a very singular sense of humor, a guy who is very committed to the bit, and a guy who definitely thinks his jokes are funny, which for me is the height of comedy. Um, And it's also, uh, you get to see Neil Young and Crazy Horse kind of at the height of their powers, uh, doing, you know, some of the best songs in their catalog. So one thing Bran and I talked about before you got on the call, Bennett, is that these movies are hard to track down. I mean, my brother bought a copy of Rust Never Sleep, said, I can't remember if it was a record store or eBay, but we've just had it forever. So we just assumed it's like, oh yeah, everyone's seen that. It's a great live album. You know, it's just, it's part of the canon, but it was unavailable for, I think, decades, right? Yeah, I think there's a, there's like a mid-aughts DVD release, but it's not really well circulated. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, and then, yeah, a Human Highway also, similarly, I think was like totally out of print for forever. Um, and I think now 
more recently has gotten a DVD release. But yeah. there's more um, reason for yeah. that one being out of print, which we'll, yeah, we'll that get one to. I think he's more embarrassed <laughs> of. Um, I'm not really sure what the deal is with with uh, Breast, uh, Breast Never Sleeps being buried like that because I don't know if I directed this, I'd you know want to get it out there. Yeah, in, in addition to being um, you know, a, a record of uh, an impressive performance. It's an impressive piece of filmmaking uh, in its own right. Right. So Human Highway, uh, kind of to the point of why this was maybe out of print for a while, um, kind of like we alluded to earlier, is bizarre, uh, to put it probably kindly. Um, it ends up being, I guess, kind of like a... The way I took it is like an environmental, like, moral tale, maybe, kind of. It's very much up to interpretation. Uh, so it follows Neil Young... And Russ Tamblin kind of is the protagonist in this little town um, where they have to essentially, you know, deal with deal with these different issues. So there's like a corrupt restaurant owner and, you know, Neil Young's character dreams of stardom and, you know, there are fledgling romances. Really anything you could want in a movie is probably in this movie uh, in a very bizarre, unexpected kind of way, including unexpected uh, numbers from Devo, the band, you know, really a little bit. Of, of anything and I think that's that's kind of like a general summary of what you can expect from this movie I don't know what do you what do you have to add to that Bennett it's kind of much like the uh, Rust Never Sleeps stage show it is kind of a jumble of things that Neil Young obviously finds hilarious he describes Jerry Lewis movies as being kind of an influence um, the character he plays is very much sort of a like a Jerry Lewis Jim Carrey sort of wacky guy character the likes of which you don't really see in movies anymore um, it's got these kind of wild, like handmade comic booky sets, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of like kind of cartoon logic and stuff. People show up as like this. Uh, people people play multiple characters. Um, Dean Stockwell plays his own dad. Much like with like Rust Never Sleeps, you know pretty quickly what you're in for. And I think if the sight of the picture of Dean Stockwell as Otto Senior in the old age makeup like doesn't make you laugh, you're probably in for a long eighty minutes. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get into the uh, differences between the director's cut and the theatrical version that uh, was not reviewed kindly, we'll say. <laughs> you ready to dive into Rust Never Sleeps? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. It might be good just to talk about what makes this concert film so different than most because it's a lot, <laughs> a lot happens very quickly. Do you want to just give us a quick intro to how this movie starts? Uh, sure, yeah. Um as kind of Jimi Hendrix's uh, national anthem is playing and, and A Day in the Life by the Beatles is playing, the uh, the road eyes are kind of like scrambling around the set, trying to get the uh, giant microphone to stand up. And I found myself wondering if this could have been an inspiration for David Byrne in Stop Making Sense, dancing with the mic stand. Um, it goes on for quite a while. This is again, like, um, I can see a lot of people fast forwarding to like 10 minutes into Rust Never Sleeps to get to the music mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, you got to really like the the road eye comedy to uh, to sit around for 10 minutes of it. Uh, but eventually Neil Young kind of like pops up, almost kind of like suddenly pops up in the frame um, on, on top of these giant amps uh, and starts up the acoustic set. Um, and he's sort of dwarfed by the equipment. Um, and I think it's kind of fitting that he opens the set with um, Sugar Mountain and uh, I'm a Child, two, you know, songs from a kind of child's perspective. You know, he's this tiny speck on the stage. And he also, when he addresses the audience, has this sort of like kind of goofy, childish sort of affect. Almost like he's workshopping the Lionel character, I thought. I definitely see some similarities between them as well. Yeah. But yeah, all the amps are gigantic. Um 
everything was supposed to make him look small because he didn't like the feeling of playing an arena. So they wanted to look as small as they could. And so all the props are giant. I love it. In Shaky, I think this pretty much hits the perfect description, but he calls it, with its odd affecting scenes of past, present, and future, Russ Never Sleeps was, in many ways, Young's most psychedelic canvas yet. American history by way of a bong hit. <laughs> pretty much nails it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Bennett, like you mentioned, he starts with the acoustic portion, and to this day, he does still start most of his full band concerts where he does you know, the solo set with some of the heavy hitters, and then he brings in the band, and they get into the cosmic jams. But one thing that stood out to me in Shaky is pretty early in his career, Neil Young said he figured his perfect path would be to become a mix of Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. Russ never sleeps pretty much nails that between the acoustic beginning and the electric ending. I mean, do you feel that's an effective approach to his performances? Yeah, I would definitely say that that is something that Neil Young strikes perfectly is he manages to both have, you know, kind of like we've been talking about that very like Bob Dylan-esque songwriting and just kind of style to things, even down to, you know, going electric at a certain point and things like this that you know he he really does that well but at the same time he does have that very like rock and roll kind of kind of attitude i guess that you could say with that rolling stones comparison you know not that not that you know if you put neil young and mick jagger together you're like oh they're the same person like that would that's just not true but i think in his own awkward kind of way neil young has the same sort of mick jagger swagger Oh, I didn't mean to rhyme like that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. But in all seriousness, though, like, I think that, that he does hit that balance very well. And I think that having that dichotomy is really interesting within that con within this concert that you get to see kind of all of these things play out. And something that kind of struck me about that was you think of this as a great concert movie. And one of the all time great concert movies came out a year before this, The Last Waltz. And the big thing with that is like, oh, the band has all these guests that come out and they do different styles of songs and all these things in a celebration. And it feels like Neil Young in his own way and all these different like personas and genres is kind of bringing out, if you kind of stick with me on this metaphor, is bringing out like his own sorts of guests per se to do different styles of songs, but it's just kind of different parts of his persona. And that's that's the thing, I think it was Bennett that mentioned it earlier that Neil Young has gone through so many reinventions that that's something he can do at any given point. He can tap into these different personas. And so, you know, long way of, of answering that. But yeah, I think he really does in this concert strike the balance between, you know, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones and everything in between. Well, Neil's in The Last Waltz. Do you think he maybe carried some influence over from that? I definitely think so. You know, so while the while the Last Waltz concert was two years before the movie itself, which would then make it three years before this. I think that a lot of that kind of mindset is still there for Neil, for Neil Young, because a lot of his concerts after 1976, you know, so after he'd been in CSNY and done the Stills Young Band, his concerts start to get bigger. You know, he starts to do more with it. And so I definitely think that, you know, being a part of the last waltz and, and seeing bigger events like that definitely had some influence on him. And just to kind of show some of his range, this was recorded in 1979. So the two albums before this were American Stars and Bars in 77, Comes a Time in 78, 
and then after this was Hawks and Doves, and then Reactor and Trans. (laughs) (laughs) That stretch alone is such an interesting (laughs) career, let alone just like five-year span. He could do it all. And then it's like everybody's rocking in old ways, right? Two kind of completely different albums that are almost like recorded in character. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When he was sued for being uncharacteristic of himself. (laughs) So I love the way they shot this film because pretty much any frame in this movie could be iconic. Like you could just make a poster out of almost anything in this and it would be awesome <laughs> i love all the shots you know from behind the stage between the amps with the road eyes peeking out during songs bennett do you want to talk a little bit about what stands out to you of how they shot this yeah um you see very little of the crowd which yeah. <laughs> i like i feel like you don't get any shots of anyone's face um i hate in like content movies when you show people like singing along and stuff like that um i like that you're really not situated within the crowd until the very end during like the encore number um, yeah, and like you said, um, this is like a, a one perfect shot type movie in a good way. Every time I'm watching this, I'll like sit and take screenshots on VLC and I'll find myself like getting into the dozens and I'm like, well, I can't, I can't just tweet a thread of <laughs> the shots of like Neil Young standing alone with his guitar. Um, yeah, it's it's visually arresting when it's just him kind of dwarfed by the amps. It's, it's great when, um, you know, the whole band comes out. Um, there are so many great shots of uh, like the three of them sort of all kind of like lined up, kind of facing in opposite directions. Um, you get so many great shots of the road eyes backstage. Uh, I think it's like when Cortez the Killer starts up, there's just a lone road eye behind the one big speaker, um, just kind of like looking lost, which is so funny. Yeah, it's um, it's great. And um, one imagines that the crowd is really baffled, you know? Like, I don't I don't think they, you know, I, maybe word of mouth, you know, you, you sort of had some idea what to expect. But I, I like that there's like really no context for any of like what's going on. Yeah, one of my favorite things about this is how when Crazy Horse comes out, they're all just stacked on the left side of the stage. They're so close to each other. You know, it's just standard practices, left side, right side, front man in the middle. They're just right there, and they're circling the whole time. But depending on who you ask, Crazy Horse has a reputation for either being sloppy and unpredictable or perfect. Um, what are your thoughts on Crazy Horse as a whole, and how do you feel his solo work stands up to the Crazy Horse albums? I think that's a great question because again like you like you said it's very much you either like love crazy horse or you hate crazy horse which seems kind of bizarre that there's no middle ground but you're right like there's not um i think in this in this film you know they come off i i would say pretty well Uh, again you know it's kind of weird that they're all so close together and half of them look like they just kind of like stumbled in from the street for the night Uh, but you know it's rock and roll that's that's what you do but it's interesting because like they really do kind of give it such a different life whenever they're there. And it's really cool to see Neil kind of interact with other people on stage. You know, after you have so many shots that are just him, it's pretty cool to see him with that group, you know, and and see how he can kind of interplay among a crowd. But I think to your larger question about like his solo work versus the crazy horse work, I think it's almost hard to compare because it feels like apples and oranges, but also at the same time, I think Crazy Horse becomes so synonymous with Neil that like, it's hard to think of them separately. Like I always forget that his second ever album, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere, is technically a Crazy Horse album, you know, because you just feel like, okay, like Cowgirl in the Sand or or Down by the River, like, oh, that's a Neil Young song. It doesn't occur to you that, oh, that's right. Crazy Horse is there too. So 
I don't know. I think it's hard to, to separate them, but at the same time, those albums are so different that it's kind of hard to compare. I, you know, if you'd asked me um, before I really dove in, I would have said I preferred the solo stuff because I've never been a huge fan of like guitar driven, like solo heavy, like jammy rock music. I like, like a hurricane is a song, for example, like when it would come up on like, if I was like listening to like, you know, the Neil Young songs I'd had on my iPod in like eighth grade and that came up on shuffle, I would skip it because it's like, all right, I don't want to listen to these solos. And it wasn't until like watching Russ Never Sleeps and really like diving into the Neil Young Crazy Horse uh, oeuvre that I've now got to the point where I'm like listening to them and like stomping around my house like Neil. Um, so I would say I, I'll give the slight edge to the stuff backed by Crazy Horse, although I think one of the reasons if you like put a gun to my head, I would probably say Russ Never Sleeps is my favorite of his albums is because you kind of get both flavors kind of, you know, as good as you get them. Um, and then I've never, I haven't read this portion of Shaky, or I don't know if it comes from Shaky, but um, on the best show when they were talking about the reception of Crazy Horse amongst the members of CSNY, um, they made it sound like they're all like disgusted by Crazy Horse. Like they all think they suck. They should, they shouldn't even be on a stage. They made it sound like Joni Mitchell was like repulsed by them. Um, I think they're great. I think it's like, I think it's so cool to how like much they look like they don't give a shit in this. Like I, I mentioned in the Google doc, like uh, Danny Talbot is wearing this. Is it, it Billy, uh, Billy Talbot? Billy Talbot, Billy right? Talbot, yeah. uh, is wearing the stupidest t-shirt in the world. Is <laughs> wearing like a Leonard Skinner, Jack Daniels parody shirt for like the concert film. Like not only am I performing in front of like 20,000 people, but it's like for posterity and I'm wearing this stupid fucking t-shirt. Neil is wearing the suspenders. Um, you know, it was interesting. In, in Shaky, it, it, Frank San Pedro describes it like it didn't go well, like the tour, like said that they felt like they were like really like out of sync and like it was like too loud. They were lost on stage. But hey, you watch them in the film, they really look like they're having a great time. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, I love their just sort of raw kind of, I, they, I, I like that they look like you can like smell like cheap beer, like wafting off of them. You know, the, the sort of American history through like a bong, a bong, the haze of bong smoke is a good way to describe the sound of Powderfinger. And I don't know, that's a, it's a type of sound I like, you know, I realized in, in, in listening to them over the last like year and a half or so. I actually found this portion last night from Graham Nash talking about Crazy Horse. He's saying... Crazy Horse only plays what Neil tells him to play, always. No extra stuff, no experimenting. That's terribly confining for a creative musician. I can see exactly why Neil plays with them, because he completely controls everything, and God forbid they should ever have an opinion. <laughs> see, that's so funny coming from a guy where, like, I bet if Neil Young said, hey, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, let's get back together, I bet literally all three of them would be like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, like, it, 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 it feels very funny having a, one of those people say that, like, I don't know, talk about other people getting bossed around by Neil. Someone who's probably been bossed around by Neil a fair amount. I mean, one thing that I was kind of surprised by in Shaky is how much of an asshole they paint a picture of Neil as because he's a perfectionist. But like with Crazy Horse, he kind of just lets it slide. I forget who it was, but someone was mentioning they messed up one note on bass at a show and Neil Young like cornered him backstage and was like, what was that? that one note you messed up like you don't think i didn't notice that and the guy was like it was horrifying <laughs> but you know greatness isn't always polite and i think neil embodies that pretty well um but no i think crazy horse is the perfect vehicle for neil young because he is able to just get in the zone with them and you know i i just joined a country band recently i may have mentioned this but like I'm not a good drummer from playing drums, so I just don't do anything fancy. And like we, this band that opened for us, the first show we played, he was like a really good jazz drummer. And he came up to me afterwards and he was like, 
that was really impressive. You didn't do anything. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> but he meant it as a compliment, I think. <laughs> you know, there is something to just not standing out and just holding down the fort that Crazy Horse does better than pretty much anybody. You know, it's you just can't replicate that. It suits Neil's style of guitar playing, too. Um, he's not at all like a showy guitar player, and I've realized he's probably like my favorite guitar player. Yeah, you kind of like know what he and Crazy Horse sound like too from the get go. On um, every everybody knows this is nowhere. Like there are, I think Down by the River is the one where he holds the same like one note like a bunch of times. There are a few solos on that album that really start with him just hitting like one note like six seven times. Um, you know, I, I remember in, it's it's Roger Ebert's review of like Year of the Horse. He really complains about Neil's tendency to do that, and it's like. I don't know, Roger, if, if you're not, if you're making this complaint in 1997, I think you just don't like Neil Young's music. I feel like, <laughs> what, what did you think you were going to get out of Year of the Horse? Yeah. It's a lot harder to make one note interesting. I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. I think and he there does are it, few... but a lot. Sorry. Oh, no, no. <laughs> okay. I think there are a few guitarists that genuinely could make a career out of like one note solos and make them just as compelling every time. So good on you for that, Neil. Yeah. Oh, on the on the subject of like the big props, um, during like a hurricane, the the road eyes are off stage blowing a fan on them. It should have been way bigger. It should have been a huge fan. It's like a normal big fan. <laughs> <laughs> what a missed opportunity. But this version of like a hurricane rips. It is so good. It's great. It isn't it kind of perfect though in a show where everything is huge. The smallest prop is a fan on a song about the a hurricane. Actually, <laughs> the one they actually need to be big. The one that's like big for a reason, and they have just this dinky, normal big fan. <laughs> they just structure this set so interestingly because you know it's they get the slower stuff, you know the acoustic stuff, and then they get the electric going, and then he plays the needle and the damage done. Like that moment to me is just so interesting because they have like all this energy in the world and then they go to like the saddest song he ever wrote. How do you guys feel about that song? Uh, it's great. Um, it like really sucks the air out of the room and all of a sudden he's alone on the stage. Um, it, it's really stark, uh, especially after some really, really huge numbers from them. Like Welfare Mothers is like a stomper. It really like brings the house down to have them just suddenly gone. Um, it, it hits really hard, um, much like the, yeah. I, it, I, I'm glad that they do that. I'm glad that they don't have that during the, the acoustic half of the show. Um, and kind of on the subject of those softer songs, like um, Sugar Mountain is not a Neil Young song I would ever throw on. And it is perfect in this setting um, with Neil against a giant backdrop like that. I'm in the same boat. I know, Brandon, I know you said you love the first album, but that's one I haven't really spent much time with because I think he just got so much better so fast that I don't really listen to that one much. I mean, it obviously it has some great stuff on it, but I think it just he improved so quickly as a songwriter. Yeah, I think that's the that's the hardest part with Neil Young is that some of his earlier stuff tends to get overshadowed by his own accomplishment because, I mean, if you think about it, within... I can do math, I swear. Within three years, he goes from his self-titled album to Harvest. I mean, yeah. that's kind of an insane amount of development. But to like the earlier point about the needle and the damage done and Sugar Mountain and stuff like this, I agree with Bennett. I love the fact that they don't bury the needle and the damage done in the acoustic section yeah. um, because that that might be the best song he's ever written, which is saying something considering he's he's one of the great uh, songwriters truly of this generation. 
So I think if you put that in the acoustic section, it would definitely get buried, you know? So having it as a stark contrast is really great. And to the point about Sugar Mountain, I also love the fact um, that they start this with this because the the recording of Neil Young's first like ever live performance in 1968 actually also has a version of Sugar Mountain. And that became a staple of a lot of his acoustic live sets uh, through the early 70s and the late 60s. So I love the fact that that's kind of something that he always sticks with. It was a song that he wrote on his 20th birthday, actually. So the fact that it's something that he kind of comes back to through the years, and especially as it leads to I Am a Child from the Buffalo Springfield years, it's kind of cool to see him acknowledge his roots. And then he kind of grows and develops through the show, you know, into the crazy horse things. But but sometimes going back, it's kind of like the life and times of Neil Young in a two hour package. Yeah, yeah, we literally like watch him grow up. Um, I, uh, it, the Sugar Mountain is such a good like thematic song to start on too, because like I don't know, Rust Never Sleeps is all about kind of like the end of an era. It's all about you know growing up, saying goodbye to the past. Thrasher really works great um, in the context of the show for that reason too. It's like his way of like referencing the CSNY years. Um, on that note, I think like Needle and Damage Done almost works the way like. Bruce doing 10th Avenue Freeze Out is like a tribute to Clarence Clemens would work. It's almost like his way of acknowledging Danny Witten. And it's mm-hmm. Bruce Barry, I think, is his, his roadie who also died around the same time. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, several years before this show, but, you know, um, probably, you know, uh, I, I think the only damage done is literally about Danny Witten, right? Yeah. It's a very, like, Neil Young gesture, too. It's, like, rigorously unsentimental while also being, like, heartbreaking. Yeah. So this... Like we haven't mentioned Devo yet, but we'll we'll, we'll get there. But um, no, we'll get to Devo. <laughs> he Neil had started listening to some different stuff. I mean, he's wearing a Jimi Hendrix patch or sticker on his guitar strap, and he said this was when he really started listening and understanding Jimi Hendrix as a guitar player. But this is also, from what I could find, the first tour where he had his what has now become permanent red pedal board. And I love his pedal board because he just has what he needs and he has one delay setting and that's just all he uses. But he really became a different guitar player on this tour. I mean, Ben, you mentioned that this was the loudest tour that a lot of people have said they've ever seen. And I mean, people were walking out because it was so loud. And I think he mentions uh, David Geffen walked out yeah. during like, the second song. Yeah, he just approaches guitar from a different point from really here on out in his career and i just love that you know trans is <laughs> so close after this um because that is also just such a departure but if you see neil young now i mean he's got his guitar he's got old black he's got this red pedal board i can't think of a guitar i would personally like to play more than neil Young's setup i mean it is name a better guitar sound i just don't know if there is one just that Ah, it's just got such grit to it but i i love the way he stomps around the stage um it's uh i don't know it's it's like a cool like move um i don't know it's like he's such like an awkward guy that it's like cool to see him like in the zone um and i i don't know yeah like we, we've said it a couple times but the show really lets you see kind of both sides of the the coin like beautifully you know him like up there alone and then him like really really rocking out um Whatever, you know, whatever your favorite flavor of Neil Young is, you get some of that in the movie, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, I, I love his voice too. Different, uh, different than his guitar playing. Um, I, uh, you know, he's again like Bob Dylan in the sense that he has a uh, not exactly classically appealing voice, but I like that it's clear that like he can make his voice sound good and like really just like chooses not to most of the time. Um, and unlike Bob Dylan, who's like made like one album of his voice sounding good, um, you know, Neil Young kind of like freely kind of moves in and out of uh, singing appealingly and like whining. Um, again, like always kind of giving you a little of everything. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great point, Bennett. It again just goes to the idea that Neil Young is more of a showman than I think he gets credit for. I think he puts on more of an act than we can tend to tend to give him credit for. Like Bennett said, he's very deliberate about his voice when he chooses to kind of apply it more or just kind of, you know... I don't want to say phone it in because he's never phoning it in, but like do something a little bit different with it. And, you know, he really does start to develop kind of his own stage persona here. Like you mentioned, Bennett, the the stomping around and stuff like that. Like he's moving around and I love the, uh, again, I'm going to get the versions wrong, but it's either hey, hey, my, my, or my, my, hey, hey. The first one that comes up, you know, the lyric that the king is gone, but he's not forgotten. This is the story of Johnny Rotten. I love that because Neil's starting to develop his own kind of stage persona in line with, you know, somebody like a Johnny Rotten who maybe wasn't a great singer, but has this just bombastic stage presence. And I think that, you know, you start to see Neil bring in some of that influence as he's bringing in influence from Jimi Hendrix on the guitar. Like, he's really starting to find himself in inspiration from other artists that he clearly admires quite a lot. So once again, to come back to shaky, um, he talks about how so many of Neil Young's songs are portraits of moments rather than a full look at an entire story. I think of Powderfinger as a perfect example of that. I mean, there's a full story in this song, but just by listening to it, we have no idea who these people are, what they're actually fighting, but it's you get everything there. I mean, literally life to death. Um, but what makes Neil Young's song so effective at conveying emotion through incomplete storylines? Jeez, wow. Um, I, you know, I think his songwriting is often like his guitar playing, and then he can be evocative and effective in just a couple of words. Um, you know, like I mentioned, Like a Hurricane is a song that I never really thought much of until seeing it live. I never really thought much of the lyrics either, but I don't know. It's it's an incredible sentiment, really, simply put, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I like that he writes these songs that oftentimes, like, they they unmoor you from, like, verse to verse. Like, Pocahontas is another example of one that, like, you think it's about one thing, and then suddenly, like, Marlon Brando is there. Um, he's got a lot of songs like that that really kind of, without seeming, like, sloppy or anything, seem to almost be, like, I, like rewriting themselves as you're hearing them. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the fact that his songs are so, I guess, kind of universal in a sense, because they do feel unfinished, or like Bennett put it perfectly, I think, that they're rewriting themselves as you go. So, you know, there might be one verse in a, in a Neil Young song that feels totally inapplicable to your life, but then another that you're like, oh man, that's that's it. You know, I think Powderfinger's a great example. I wrote it down again here, the line, and I just turned 22, I was wondering what to do. I heard that song for the first time a week after I turned 22 when I was really, really struggling. And I heard that line I was like, oh man, like he gets me. And then I listened to the rest of the song and I was like, I'm going to ignore the rest of it. This right here, this was good. Like, I think that's the thing about Neil Young is it allows you more so to kind of pick and choose moments that really, really speak to you. Like his songs more so feel like 
like a menu of things that are going to touch you rather than you're having to take the whole song. And I think there's something, you know, to that that a lot of songwriters don't necessarily achieve. Yeah, like, I don't know, like Thrasher is, you know, it could be like a really kind of beautiful song about like kind of like taking stock of your life and like figuring out which direction to go. Or it can be this like really bitter, like, oh, my my friends suck. I've really got to like, you know, say goodbye to them. Um, and I don't know, he like contains multitudes, you know, his like his songwriting could be like the needle in the damage done, or it could be like um, uh, Welfare Mothers, which like, I, I think it's always just kind of like, left a weird taste in my mouth. Like, is he like trolling? Is it like, what's like the grossest sentiment we can we can express in a song? Um, you know, I, is like, is that like him like trying to be like what people think like Crazy Horse is? You know, I, I, I don't know. I like that he um, contains all of that. Yeah, again, without ever, like, really, like, drawing attention to itself. Like, even his really, like, well-written, like, even the story songs, um, you know, like, again, I, I love Bob Dylan, but, like, and I, I, I love Bob Dylan, I love Bruce Springsteen, but every now and then in the 10-minute long songs, you could be like, all right, I think you're using five words here where you could have used one. Um, whereas, you know, you listen to, like, one of the Neil Young kind of story songs, like, like Tired Eyes or something, um, it's way more... It's way more actually poetic, you know? Like, Bruce and Bob are often, like what people people often call them poetic because they've got a lot of like big fancy words like neil young is actually like a poem oftentimes yeah i sound like i'm shitting on bob dylan and bruce springsteen by the way <laughs> <laughs> let's just make it clear everybody these these are like three heads on mount rushmore for me <laughs> to me i think the thing to me is that he just leaves so much to explore because like powder finger is a song that i'd heard like 20 times and it was like oh it's great but then you listen to it and it's like okay so it's a character who dies and then continues narrating the song who else does that like he's literally leaving like his death wish to his family like just no one really can pull that off you know i just think of some of the so much of the music that i listened to when i was younger that i haven't come back to it's just you just kind of grow out of it but neil young's like you age into it it's there's just so much that you're never gonna see on first glance and it's just a pool you're (laughs) gonna keep swimming in (laughs) So I think the last thing we need to cover is, hey, hey, my, my, we've kind of touched on it, but how many concert films have the same song in there twice and in totally different versions that isn't just like, you know, a reprise as they play over the loudspeaker and walk off the stage? Like, this is a totally different version where, as we'll uh, cover in the next film, but Neil jammed with Devo and uh, he showed Crazy Horse the footage of that and uh, they went, oh, we're going to play this differently. Okay. <laughs> And this is what they came up with. And, you know, a lot of people have mentioned, like, this is right when punk rock was dying. And, you know, Neil was like, there's something to this loud, abrasive approach. Let's go there. And it also famously has the, you know, it's better to burn out than to fade away, which ask 10 people about that line. You'll get many different opinions. But in this one, they change it to because Rust never sleeps. Did either of you look into the history of that line? I heard it was a slogan for Rustoleum <laughs> that one of the members of Devo remembered from their days in advertising. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Mark Mothersbaugh had come up with it because um, they were like doing graphic design for Rustoleum. And um, Neil told them, like, well, if you forget a line, just come up with your own. And so Mark Mothersbaugh saw Rust and he was like, oh, because Rust never sleeps. And Neil was like, I'm taking that. Do you care? <laughs> 
but yeah, no, it's funny because I'd seen some people debating it online. Like, well, the timeline doesn't add up because this movie was out three years before Human Highway. But uh, Human Highway took he was working four on Human Highway years for like five film. years, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. It's great. I, I don't know. It gets like quoted so often that like, you know, uh, it, it's been sort of sapped of its impact. But a uh, uh, powerful song with uh, great songwriting. It's uh, it's great acoustic and it's great with the horse. It just is a spectacular song. I think it's one of Neil's best songs. And it's one that kind of has taken on a life of its own. Like you mentioned, Craig, the line, you know, it's better to burn out than fade away has so many different interpretations. And that line itself has taken on a life of its own since, you know, Kurt Cobain cited it in his suicide note. Like, it's fascinating that that song, you know, especially in its relation to, you know, the dying of, of punk and then the fact, too, that, like I mentioned earlier, he cites Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols. I mean, there's this level of awareness that Neil is writing in this very specific moment saying, you know, this movement may be fading away, but, you know, rock and roll will never die. Like, I think that's such a, a fascinating takeaway from this song, and especially because it, it's... It's not his most loud, it's not his most in your face, but it maybe is the one that is the greatest testament to what he's trying to do here. And that's, you know, preserve rock and roll. And I think the whole film is kind of a testament to this idea that rock and roll will never die. The like fuzzy guitar sound on the opening riff is like my favorite sound in any song. Yeah. Uh, you can't not just be pumping your fist when that <laughs> kicks in. At the same time though, I love that they conclude it with Tonight's the Night because Tonight's the Night is such an awesome uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 it it's certainly it's um, album in microcosm. It's this like stomping, like good time song. that's actually like miserable. Yeah. It's really like, God, can we finally go to sleep? Um, I don't know. It's, it's a great way to close it out. And I, like I said, I like that you finally like zoom out and kind of sit within the crowd for it. Great album. Great movie. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. <laughs> I like Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> so I think to close this out, we'll just go here. Um, so after this tour, Neil Young said, no one ever asked why I played with Crazy Horse again after this movie. And uh, that I think that just kind of settles the debate. Like, are they good? Like, does it matter? This is what they're capable of. But Neil Young would also provide plenty of questions with some of his other 80s projects, including the vocoder Heavy Trans, Everybody's Rockin' with the Shocking Pinks, and, of course, the much-beligned Human Highway. We're going to cover that after a short break. We'll be right back. Get ready. Hey kids, looking for the right bread to make Freedom Toast? Freedom Bread. Look for the red, white, and blue bombs printed on the wrapper. This is K-Glow. It's 5.30 in Linear Valley. What a day. Oh yeah, we sure are lucky, you know, to be living in Linear Valley. Paradise. Hey, I'm sorry about your boss. What'd he die of? Radiation poisoning. Yeah. Should've been me that died instead of Otto. Yeah, I I worked with radiators for seven or eight years. I fixed almost every radiator in every car in town. I even drank the water out of one of those radiators once, and I I feel good. If you got any last-minute shopping to do, you better get it done now. Because this planet's got the shits, and it's about to blow. And ain't nobody getting out in this one. Much like his songs, Human Highway follows a single day in the life of a small group of people. It's an incomplete portrait, though it does have a definite ending. It was critically panned when it came out, and for years had a terrible reputation as an incoherent work. What was your perception of, of the film before you watched it? 
I didn't know much about it. I just really knew that it existed and that it had a bad reputation. And like I said earlier, you know, if you'd asked me, is Neil Young funny? Does Neil Young have a sense of humor? I would have probably said, I don't think so. I, I would have said, I doubt it. He kind of seems pretty serious. Yeah, I think my first perception of this actually came from the fact that you, Craig, sent me a scene from this movie about a month and a half ago with like no other context. And I just watched that and that's all that I knew about it. Wait, um, remind me, which so, scene? It was the scene where Russ Tamblin is filling up. I have him written down as baby man, but I guess that's not the actual character. Bo- boogie boy. <laughs> boogie boy. <Okay. laughs> Close enough, right? But it's that scene where Russ Tamblin's like filling up his truck. Oh. Yeah, you just sent me that with like no other context. And so that was my first impression of this movie. <laughs> okay. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, no, it's yeah. bizarre. <laughs> so yeah, I I didn't know much about it, but I just kind of knew it was an out-of-print Neil Young movie. And so my brother and I went to see it at the Hollywood Theater when they released the director's cut. So we kind of knew it wasn't supposed to be very good, um, but the Devo's bassist was there for a Q&A, and you know, he introduced it by saying... Devo hated the movie when it came out. They thought it was just nonsense and it was meandering without an endpoint, worth meandering too. But then with the director's cut, he saw that Neil Young had a vision all along. And, you know, in this cut, he confirmed that it actually was worth the time. But I don't know. I don't think either of you watched it, but I, I tracked down the original version online. Did neither of you have a chance to watch it? No, I've heard it's not good. It's not good. <laughs> but you both, yeah, so you both saw the director's cut, which uh, it is good. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, so there are some differences just right off the bat. The theatrical release begins with the final scene in the director's cut, which is after the end of the world. And it's it just kills the momentum of the film right out of the gates you just don't know what's going on and not in a good way where it's like oh this is kind of fun it's just like wait what was the baby face man doing in ash like it just doesn't make sense and the only part i liked more of the original theatrical release was there's a really great sequence where it's like right after that the radio comes on and they say oh what a day and then they cut to neil young and he just goes oh what a day and then they cut to dennis hoffer and it's like oh what a day and they all just start with that that was it for what was better they should have kept that I, well it's funny because like all those scenes are still in there but it's just you don't notice it because they just it's there enough time has passed that it's not like oh yeah that's funny <laughs> but all of the other recuts are so much stronger in the director's cut Like, I really didn't understand why this movie had the reputation it did. Like, I didn't think it's going to be that much worse. Like, I just thought, like, oh, people just didn't get it at the time. Like, it's one of those. But no, the theatrical cut is very different. They just removed a lot of spaces between jokes. So, like, the stuff that is funny in the director's cut doesn't have time to sit. And it's just kind of, like, thrown at you. And you just don't have time to register that it's funny. And then the way it comes across just doesn't land but i love the director's cut but this is a movie that neil young wanted to do it took him four years to shoot three million dollars of his own money and uh dennis hopper's in it and he called it a great fucking party and maybe the only not smart financial thing neil young ever did (laughs) this is this is many years before the pono to be fair 
So for some background on this film, Neil Young had a previous idea called The Tree from Outer Space. Pretty much from his description, exactly what it sounds like with a similar ending to Human Highway. He also said Human Highway was inspired after an egg fight with Dean Stockwell, Russ Tamplin, and Larry Johnson. And they decided they would approach this by writing the script after it had already happened. Because he thought that's how Charlie Chaplin made movies. So... That was how they went into this. Brianna, do you want to give us a quick introduction to Lionel and who he is in this movie? Sure. So Neil Young plays the protagonist of Lionel, um, who is, for lack of a better word to describe him, like a little bit of a bumbling oaf. He's kind of an awkward guy. So he works at this gas station connected to this diner, um, and he dreams of being uh, a big-time musician and celebrity um, and that's essentially his his gig, his motivation throughout the movie. So Bennett Devo also plays a pretty integral part of this movie. Do you want to tell us a bit about what they're doing here? Yeah, Devo are all employees at the uh, nearby Cal Nava, uh, like nuclear facility. Um, they have kind of not their classic Devo getup, but they are all kind of in the same uniform. Uh, they have these like hard hats uh, and like tubes in their nose, and they're all glowing red. And Mark Mothersbaugh is um, the only one who's not in that outfit. He's got a rubber, a very unsettling rubber baby mask. Uh, and he speaks in this like creepy baby talk, um, subtitled. Um, the only person in the movie is subtitled. Um, he has some of like the best lines. The scene you referenced uh, where he's, you know, Russ Tamlin's filling up his car. Every scene in that, every line in that scene is incredible. Yeah. Um, especially when he drinks the gas and goes, mm, good gas. So, so good. So, Whoever wants to take this, what is going on in this movie? <laughs> well, uh, a lot. Oh, and I, I should mention that, like, the, the nuclear facility kind of, like, looms on the horizon, like, in Springfield. Um, we're in a town called Linear Valley, um, which, like I said, is in the shadow of this, uh, these cooling towers um, at this nuclear plant. It's near Megapolitan City. Um, and I, one of the things I like about it is, like, from the get-go, um, there's a premise introduced that there's going to be a talent show uh, that, like, several people are preparing for, which is one of, like, the all-time great premises, um, you know, if everyone's, like, uh, getting ready for a talent show. It's up there with uh, We Have to Put on a Show to Save the Theater. Um, and I like that, like, the talent show is kind of in the background, and we never get to see it because um, the world ends. Um, but a, a lot of other stuff is kind of going on around in the background. Uh, Dean Stockwell plays Otto, who's just inherited the diner from his late father, uh, Otto Sr., also played by Dean Stockwell. And he's trying to figure out how he can uh, make a few bucks uh, by uh, cutting back on the great deals, uh, the six sausages for the price of two deal. Um, he's thinking about maybe like burning the restaurant down for the insurance money. Yeah, Frankie Fontaine is a is a, a rock star who uh, Neil's character Lionel looks up to, and then you have. Did you see um, who plays him? Uh, he's also played by Neil. Yeah, um, and apparently based on David Crosby, or maybe some people think it's a dig at David Crosby. And uh, there's the various uh, waitresses at the diner all have kind of their their narratives. Um, there's Irene, who um, is kind of in charge, uh, played by Geraldine Barron. She um, is. Kind of, she overhears Otto's plan to maybe uh, burn the restaurant down and is going to blackmail him. Then you've got Catherine, who uh, gets fired because uh, Dean Stockwell has to hire uh, Russ Tamblin. And then you've got Charlotte, who Lionel has a crush on. And there is an incredible sequence, uh, the sort of love at first sight <laughs> sequence between Lionel and Charlotte. 
uh, where it cuts between various shots of Charlotte, uh, starting with like mid shots, going into like close ups, then like close ups of her like blinking and close ups of her like licking her lips, uh, to basically like uh, the same close up of Lionel basically just looking like increasingly like Tex Avery Wolf like, like literally like licking his lips and going like, whoa, oh, um, incredible mugging from Neil Young. Um, he should have done more acting. Like after watching this movie, I don't know how you could finish this and not go like, Neil could have been a great comic leading man. He could have been, you know, uh, a, a Jerry Lewis had he not been, you know, a musician. So it's funny you say that because Neil Young has said that Human Highway was inspired by The Wizard of Oz, Japanese horror films, and Jerry Lewis films. Do you feel that influence comes across? Uh, the Jerry Lewis and Wizard of Oz, for sure. I guess I'm... I think the the Japanese horror films he said mo- mostly was like the the aesthetic of like the sets and stuff the sort of like um, handmade feelings. Um, yeah, Lionel is very much a Jerry Lewis character. Like you're not sure if he's you're not sure if he's a kid or just sort of like a childish adult. Um, he's just, like dressed kind of like a child, and you know he and he and uh, Russ Tamlin like ride around on their bikes. Um, and then the Wizard of Oz element kind of comes into play with his sort of uh, fantasy sequence, which we'll maybe talk about later. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I think every Split Picks episode I've been on, I've compared the film in some way to the work of David Lynch, and I really feel like this time it really applies. This is very Lynchian, and not just because, like, Russ Tamblin and Dean Stockwell are in it, um, and not just because, I mean, I don't know, there's a diner, there's owls, but also just the weird, like, jaundiced look at Americana is right out of, like, a David Lynch movie or a, or a John Waters movie. I mean, I think it's really just a matter of, like, a lot of the same influences appeal to all three of them. But if you told me that David Lynch saw Human Highway, I would, I, I don't know, I would be surprised if David Lynch hadn't seen Human Highway, frankly, given the, the sort of similar... I mean, a lot, there's a lot of people online who think this is pretty much a direct influence on a lot of what David Lynch did, and especially because, I think, was it five people from this cast were later in David Lynch movies? Something like that, yeah. I mean, I, the two that stick out are obviously Russ Dennis Hammond Hopper. <laughs> but, I mean, I, oh, Dennis Hopper, duh. I think, yeah, jeez. I, I, I think it's because he's only in one David Lynch thing that I don't like think of him as like being a David Lynch guy, you know? The nuclear stuff, just a, a lot of it. It just feels very, yeah, like he's he's pulling from a lot of the same influences. And I know, um, I, I, I thought of that because I know both John Waters and David Lynch pull from the Wizard of Oz a lot. I think John Waters has his favorite film and David Lynch pulls from it a ton, including probably most notably in Wild at Heart, which I think they talked about on the yeah. David Lynch episode. So I think the element that ties these two films together is that Neil Young does what he wants when he wants. And as we said, he funded this himself. I don't even know what the question is here, but you know, this is just such a Neil Young thing that I this is a film that I don't think anyone else could have made. It's kind of like Head, where it's like, yeah, of course they had to just like get high in that room and come up with this weird concept. Like, it, of course this movie started with an egg fight. How else does it begin? <laughs> but I, the thing I like about this movie is that everyone in it has a dream of some sort that they're all trying to get to, but it's the last day on Earth, and none of them are going to get it. <laughs> I think that's how he described it, too. It's like... Uh just looking in on the lives of like just regular people on what turns out to yeah. be the last day on earth um and it's great yeah it's 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 this like like i said like this jaundiced look at this kind of like classic american story you know people like working in a diner dreaming of something bigger and little do they know uh, 
<laughs> the world is about to end. I, uh, it's, it's really a testament to just how great the first decade of his career went, that he had a blank check of this size. I mean, I guess he was writing it himself, but still, he had to get, like, actors and crew to, like, show up and, like, take orders. Uh, incredible to be, like, in the grand scheme of things, 12 years is not that long a time in a career, and that he had accrued such cachet to make a movie like this, uh, you know, pretty impressive for, for the first, like, decade yeah. and a couple years of your career. I don't know. I wish more musicians uh, took swings like this, you know? Yeah, that's a really, really great point on all accounts, Bennett. Like, really, you would love to see more musicians do things like Human Highway or do things like Head, you know, in the case of the monkeys, because it's such a fascinating glimpse inside of the mind of artists in a completely different way than we're used to. Because, you know, we, we hear a, you hear a Neil Young song and you're like, oh, okay, I'm seeing inside of his mind. But then seeing him make a movie such as this is like a completely different side of his mind. But it, I think it ties back to kind of what we were talking about in the Rust Never Sleeps part, that he's a really good storyteller, is that objectively, this movie's kind of weird. But kind of. The, <laughs> Yeah, kind of, was maybe being, being kind. But every, you know, like you said, like everybody has a dream and it becomes very engaging because of the fact that, you know maybe not in the exact sense, but there's maybe a character that everybody can relate to and the things that they're trying to achieve. Like there's a point in my notes in which I just stopped taking notes because I was genuinely so intrigued and in what was happening. I'm like, oh, what's going to happen to these people? And there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, like you said, Neil Young had a blank check to tell the story that he wanted to tell here. And honest to God, he did it pretty successfully. It makes you wonder if, like, he saw the staging of the, like, the tour, uh, The Rust Never Sleeps, like, stage shows, if he saw that as, like, directing of a kind, or if he saw uh, writing out a set list as a kind of, as a kind of writing or as a kind of editing in, in itself. Um, I think, I just, every part of this movie is funny. There's a quote in Shaky that, like, it's, um, never have so many people who weren't funny made a comedy together, and... I don't know if that's the case. If all these people aren't funny, then more unfunny people should make comedies because there is something that made me laugh out loud in almost every scene in this movie from, you know, uh, Otto putting like salt in his coffee to Russ Tamlin's various pratfalls, um, you know, to like we mentioned, the, the kind of Tex Avery Wolf shots of, of Lionel. And it's also like like a beautiful film to look at too. The shots of, of Lionel and, and Russ on their on their bikes, um, you know, these stationary bikes against these like green screen backgrounds. It's a, it's a really like cool effect. Um, and, you know, suggests a guy who obviously knows from, from filmmaking. Even if I'm sure if you ask Neil what he thought of this movie, he probably is not a fan, you know? Probably thinks it got away from him. He has, well, I mean, I think that's why he spent so long tinkering with it because he knew it could be better and you know i think the director's cut definitely is stronger so he had the idea there it just took a while to get correct oh um there's a scene early on where um Char uh no it's uh catherine the the uh the waitress who gets fired is looking at the picture of old otto it's the first time we see otto senior and she's crying um looking at the picture while this uh, I, I, can't, I don't know the name of the song, but it's in an Adam Curtis movie. Don't they know it's the? Don't they know it's the end of the world? Uh, it ended because yeah, I lost your love or something like that. And she's like bawling her eyes out at this picture of Otto Senior, and it's played completely straight. There's no, there's no gag, there's no joke about it. I think that is more Lynch than Lynch. I honestly think Neil Young should sue David Lynch for 
they're just appropriating that scene in like everything he's made since 1982. That I mean, it's a very right out of Twin Peaks sort of a sequence, um, and and played really well by by the actress Charlotte Stewart. And yeah, like I said, I don't know. Neil directs the hell out of it. Doesn't play it for laughs. Really injects some like genuine like pathos into um, you know this kooky story. This movie is most famous these days, especially while it's hard to track down. There is an 11-minute jam with Devo where they play Hey, Hey, My, My, the electric version that would inspire Russ Never Sleeps to jump back in time. In the director's cut, it's, I, I believe it, it's in the middle of the dream sequence, and then he gets the milk bath, obviously. But <laughs> I know you're fond of milk, bed. <laughs> that actually turned my stomach. <laughs> Oh, it's so fucking gross. Um, but yeah, it's kind of wild because in the original version, they show the full 11 or so minute clip and that is the end of the dream sequence. And, you know, the dream ends with Neil Young like in the crib with Mark Mothersbaugh and he's lulling the baby to sleep with his guitar and then he's taken out of the Twilight Zone. But in the director's cut, it's just like a f- three or four minute little chunk of it. It's just the start to... Maybe all the lyrics are sung, but then they jam a bit, and then it just it goes elsewhere. What do you make of this whole dream sequence? I mean, it is it's out there. Yeah, I think, uh, like you said, I mean, it's just it's just kind of weird. But like, it's maybe one of the most normal parts of the movie. So you just kind of <laughs> like, okay, like that's that's fine. Like, of course, you know, I feel like they get a l- get away with a little bit more because it's a dream sequence. And like, my biggest note was just the fact that he's wearing a never mind the bollocks here's the sex pistol shirt i was like wow that's awesome that's great <laughs> but like it's 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 weird but it makes sense where it is and it's kind of like fulfilling i guess in some way for this small moment to see lionel living his dream especially because you you know like we know now that we've seen the movie what's what's going to happen to him at the end of it like it's a cool addition probably good that it's four minutes instead of 11 because it might get tiresome but I like it. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I um, in Shaky they described that eleven minute scene, and I was like, "What? What is this? Am I, they're describing some scene that I didn't see, um, like when he crawls into the crib." But um, no, I think the the dream sequence is great. I um, it's really like visually inventive. The the door is like right out of the intro to the Twilight Zone, um, right out of the gate when he like walks to the phone booth and he's getting like blown over by like the heavy wind. Such great like physical comedy from Young doing like a Buster Keaton bit. Like again, like not something I expected from Neil Young. And then I like that we see these just weird elliptical like snippets of his career as a musician. We see him like backstage drinking a Heineken. We see him like finishing up. We see him getting like tossed around in the crowd during a Devo performance, but we don't get the real like moments of like triumph. Um, I think that's kind of in keeping with the sort of, you know, I don't know, Neil Young's like, I don't know, resistance to like the easy thing you know the easy emotion the easy uh the easy note so the dream sequence starts because he uh is repairing frankie fontaine's car and he somehow hits his head underneath and oil starts spilling on his face it kind of comes out of nowhere and the biggest difference with the uh theatrical release is because they have the 11 minute jam with devo like you forget there's a movie going on because there's like 10 other minutes of the dream sequence like it's a 20 minute thing just kind of thrown in the middle and then they come back and a bomb goes off it's like wait what's going on here i like too that like the the sort of narrative of um lionel's fantasy sequence is doled out in like I swear to God, it's like 10 headlines. It goes on for forever. I was like taking screenshots like, 
I'm gonna have to make a thread if I want to show these headlines. It's such a it's again a trope that never gets old. I don't know if you guys have seen Elvis, but Elvis does a lot of story through headlines. And my girlfriend was not a fan, and I was like, "This is perfect. This is a trope I love done perfectly <laughs> and done to death. <laughs> Wonderful." So I do think the dream sequence missed a great opportunity. Lionel definitely could have had like written his first song and had it have been T-Bone off of Reactor. I think oh, yeah. It's just so great. Like this mechanic who could just be like, what would I write a song about? Got mashed potatoes. Ain't got no T-Bone. Seven minute jam. Let's go. <laughs> I, uh, I love that song, by the way. I do too. Um, I love Reactor. I had never heard of it until they talked about it on the, the Best Show Patreon and they were like, oh, you know, so tedious. And I was like, "There's it's bit city to do literally the same thing for five minutes and then really start rocking out. I mean, I, if, if you don't think Neil Young is funny, you don't get comedy. I don't know. <laughs> like, T-Bone is, it's funny, it's, it's, I don't know, it's like a funny bit, like, I don't know, that, that song, and like, everybody's rocking, that's funnier than whole comedy albums, yes. stuff like that. <laughs> that's funnier than any Weird Al song. I, I Has Weird Al ever parodied Neil Young, by the way? We should look that up. Ooh, I don't know. So I do find it interesting that anytime there's a radio playing in this movie, it's either like, you know, 50s, old school songs, or trans, because Neil mm-hmm. Young was, I'm pretty sure, recording trans while they were shooting this. At least part of it, because it was a four-year <laughs> shoot. But I, you know, Bennett, you mentioned that one right out of the gates about it being one of your favorites. But I agree, it's his mis- most misunderstood, and it really does fit the soundtrack for this movie perfectly. I think so too. <laughs> it's sort of the retro futury. Yeah. Um, speaking of, it is so funny that this movie is called Human Highway. When, like, that is the Neil Young song that this movie least calls to mind. <laughs> or it's, you know, the, the mode of Neil Young's, like, music that this least calls to mind. Um, like, I don't know, like, Transformer Man or something would be a much better title for this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not too long after Human High was, re- was released, Neil Young would be sued by Geffen Records for making albums that were uncharacteristic of Neil Young. <laughs> They weren't fond of trans, so they said, hey, you need to do something more of like a rock album. So he, he gave them Everybody's Rockin' with the Shocking Pinks in return. Um, and then he countersued them, saying they violated his creative freedom. And I believe he won <laughs> that uh, lawsuit and then released two more records. So again, to return to what he was recording at this time, after Rust Never Sleeps came Live Rust, Hawks and Doves, Reactor, Trans... <laughs> Everybody's rocking, old ways, landing on water. Is it possible to say an album is uncharacteristic of someone who can go across so many genres? And especially when you throw this movie in the mix, can you say anything is uncharacteristic of Neil Young? No. The thing about Neil Young is he could come out tomorrow with like a fully realized rap concept album and it would be like, oh, that makes sense. Like there's nothing uncharacteristic for this man at this point. One thing I like about Neil Young is that even for a man of his era, he's always had bad haircuts. <laughs> like, no one escaped the 70s unscathed, obviously, and he <laughs> has just kind of always been, even for, like, the time period, just rocking and especially... And I say that as someone with an awful haircut, by the way. That's why I'm wearing his hat. Um, no, and it's funny, too, that, like, even before that run, even before he kind of c- 
was really like you know what most listeners would say as even even before he was becoming you know uncharacteristic or like consciously experimenting like you could listen to like the first 10 years of his records too and it's pretty tough it's pretty tough to you know put your finger on what exactly he's doing because he has you know singer songwritery stuff he has like garagey stuff he has like country rock stuff um gave birth to grunge (laughs) yeah so i think before we go we got to talk about dennis hopper What's going on with him in this film, Bennett? <laughs> you brought him up, but he's freaking nuts in this movie. Um, like, by all accounts, the the sort of anecdotes about the making of this and Shaky, he was uh, unhinged on set. Um, he uh, caused a knife injury to one of uh, the fellow his fellow actors, who ended up like suing him and Neil Young. I don't know. He just seems like really like authentically fucked up throughout the throughout the making of the film, uh, particularly when he's like warning them about the earthquake. It's, like, really, like, frightening stuff. Um, uh, a guy who is known to sort of, you know, give kind of wacky performances, but uh, this this is truly uh, truly in the pantheon up there with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and, and Blue Velvet, of the sort of out-there Dennis Hopper performances. And that raccoon he was feeding on set was apparently, like, actually just, like, a... Or the raccoon he's feeding in the movie is apparently just some, like, feral raccoon that was, like, yeah, walking he was just set, feeding not, it. A, not a trained animal. <laughs> yeah, I think he was probably my favorite actor to watch in this movie, past Neil, just because of the fact that, like, you're right, he just... Genuinely, it seems like there is something wrong with him, and there's something incredibly captivating about that. I was going through my notes and clearly I meant to write more, but I have a bullet point that just says, why is Dennis Hopper? And I think that that maybe encapsulates what's going on with him in this movie. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. Again, like it just makes you wish Neil made more movies. Cause it's like, um, he, you know, he clearly was like really close with Dean Stockwell and, and Russ Tamblin. I think, I don't know, according to his Wikipedia page, he's like unofficially the, the sort of grandfather of, of Amber Tamblin. So like one imagines he could have like made them like his, his stable of actors, you know? Um, Dennis Hopper could have been his Klaus Kinski, you know? Kind of wish, you know, if I have a complaint, I wish there were a few more performances. I wish we got more of like, I, like I wish we got like another Devo song in there. They do kind of a short version of uh, It Takes a Worried Man, which I didn't know was a standard, by the way. I thought it was a Devo song. Oh, right. I didn't know I was know watching uh, Distant Voices Still Lives. Um, like he's uh, on the train with his, his military buddies and they're singing it. And that's, uh, that's like World War II Britain. So it uh, definitely predates Devo, which I, yeah, I was surprised to see. Um, you know, I wish we got like another performance from them. But um, the, uh, the performance that closes out the film really doesn't disappoint. I don't know, it's good to see Russ Tamblyn doing some dancing too. He does mostly like Pratt Falls in the movie, but it's it's nice to see him, you know, doing what he's famous for at the end. Shovel dances, right? <laughs> and that doesn't make you want to get up and dance with a shovel. I mean, I think that's really a personal problem at that point. So, Brianna, do you want to uh, give us a little bit about how this movie ends because it's a pretty pretty definite ending? Yeah, pretty pretty definite is a good way to put it. Um, the world ends, so you know that's a pretty pretty stark conclusion but there's essentially just ends and then what you see is boogie boy am i saying that correct before i call him baby head again okay so boogie boy is out like among the ashes of the world basically and he's doing some sort of like perverse version of blowing in the wind among the ruins about how the world is over what's he what's he changed to the answer is blowing at your rear (laughs) or something like that yeah (laughs) And he kind of gives this, like, final farewell of, it sure is lonely around here. Take me home, country road, in the immortal <laughs> words of John Denver. And then, like, every character you've met throughout the movie is on this, like, stairway to heaven, basically. And <laughs> that's just how it ends. 
Uh, yeah, Russ Tamblin's character does literally like one more pratfall over the credits, like clicks his heels and falls down again. Yeah, I, I gotta say, Boogie Boy has one of the all-time great lines in this movie. He pulls up and he's like, Every, you know, everybody start digging. Then he goes, the whole planet's got the shits and it's about to blow. There are so many good lines in this movie. There's so much good, like, who's on first type banter between, um, uh, particularly between Russ Tamblin and Neil Young. Um there's all sorts of weird, like, there's all sorts of weird, like, wordplay. Um, like, there's this this woman who shows up. Dennis Hopper shows up as this, like, like Hollywood guy in, like, a convertible at one point. And there's also this, like, woman who's, like, walking down the side of the road because I think Lionel's, like, fixed her car and it's broken down. And she says something, does Robert Redwood wear wingtips? And then Dennis Hopper's character replies, I know Robert Redfield. That's just a weird, like, non sequitur like that. Or, like, when he pulls up and Dean Stockwell, he asks, like, for directions and Dean Stockwell says he can't get there from here. Like, Neil Neil Young clearly is a guy who loves, like, classic comedy. And, uh, I don't know, it shows. Um, You know, uh, hate to keep saying it, but, you know, whether or not he's funny, hey, that's for you to decide. But it's clear he knows what's funny. And that's what's more important. (laughs) Neil Young's motto is, be great or be gone it's about as good as it gets um, but one thing that really stuck out to me and shaky is when he was talking about preparing the archive which is you know been going since the 90s he said that he really believes that you have to release your worst songs and your artistic whims so that people can really get a sense of how great the good stuff actually is with each of these films rust never sleeps and human highway do you feel these are great or were they more of just an indulgence? I think Rust Never Sleeps, you know, taken on its own, is, you know, up there among The Last Waltz or, or Stop Making Sense as one of the all-time great concert movies. And kind of like we talked about earlier, I mean, if you really want to try and get to know, not that any of us could really get to know Neil Young in, in a short period of time, I think that takes a lot of, of work, you know, through his material. But if you're looking for your two-hour primer on you know, the peaks of Neil Young, I think Russ Never Sleeps is that. And, you know, that really is great because you get to see him doing what he does best in so many different facets. And, you know, if you had to pick one thing that would probably survive through the generations as the most emblematic of Neil Young and his legacy, I'd say it would probably be Russ Never Sleeps, the film. Human Highway, honest to God, I I think is great. I think is really good. And it's weird, sure, but just because something's weird doesn't mean that it's bad. Like, it gets a point, it gets across all the points that it's trying to make, and it does so in a way that, that pulls you in. Like, it keeps your attention, and maybe some of that is just morbid curiosity of how weird can this get. But it works, and I think that, you know, in that way, Neil Young does something great here, too. He does what he wants, sure, maybe he's indulging himself, but... It's still something that is really effective and, you know, he wouldn't be where he is today and regarded as the icon he is today if he didn't take risks in his storytelling. And this one, again, as bizarre as, as it is, really pays off for him. Yeah, I think um, I think they're both great. I think they both um, do what, you know, I think I, I won't go so far as to say every great film does, but I think a lot of great films do, which is, you know, provide kind of a, a portrait of the person who made them. I think these are both, um, in, in their ways, uh, portraits of, of Neil Young kind of looks inside his head. Um, you know, I think, like we said, Rust Never Sleeps, weirdly, is almost like a, 
a biography of Neil Young, kind of a look through his musical life um, in a set list. And then Human Highway is this incredible kind of like state of the union of his like obsessions and, and fixations and, and the weird ideas he was playing with around this time, this period, you know, when he was maybe giving birth to grunge, maybe putting punk to bed, maybe, you know, and, and certainly involving um, as an artist. So, yeah, I mean, I think if you're, I, I wouldn't recommend Human Highway to every casual Neil Young fan. You know, if you're someone who bought the greatest hits, if you're someone who like, you know, likes Heart of Gold when you hear it on the radio, maybe Human Highway is not for you. But I think if you, if you're particularly interested in the like, you know, late seventies, early eighties era of Neil Young, if the, you know, Geffen feud interests you, I think this can't help but be of interest because it's a testament to what an uncategorizable sort of guy uh, Neil Young is um, and uh, what a uh, truly one-of-a-kind artist. And I think it's really funny. I think, um, you know, you, you can't not laugh at some of this stuff. People in old age makeup is funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's the conclusion. <laughs> it is! <laughs> You know, we haven't done a, a proper uh, ending pick in a few episodes. I feel like this one kind of warrants it, though. Bennett, we'll start with you. Human Highway versus Rust Never Sleeps. Which one are you picking? If you'd asked me this morning, I would have said Rust Never Sleeps. I'm going to have to say Human Highway. I've watched it twice today, and it is, or twice in the last two days, and it is so good. It's so funny. Like, I, we talked about the Lynch and the, and the John Waters. I think there's, like, some Simpsons DNA in there, too. Yeah, incredible stuff. And, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say it for, like, the 15th time. I wish Neil Young had directed more movies. Um, I haven't seen Journey Through the Past. I've heard it's not great, but um, I don't know. He's got two classics under his belt, which is more than a lot of acclaimed filmmakers could say. You know, I think I'm probably going to go Rust Never Sleeps. And that's no offense to Human Highway, because I genuinely didn't expect to think it was, like, a masterpiece. But it is. Like, you have you have made a convert here, Bennett, out of, out of this movie. <laughs> But, you know, Rust Never Sleeps, again, you know, is, is my bread and butter as a Neil Young fan and as a, as a fan of the convergence of film and music and, and how you, you know, visually represent music. I think it's a masterclass in that. And again, you know, if you're really looking to try and get some semblance of Neil Young and, and how we perceive him and how he perceives himself, there's really nothing better than Rust Never Sleeps. I'm torn because I did watch the theatrical release of Rust Never, or Human Highway, I mean it's bad like it was really bad so i think if you just say rust never sleeps versus human highway it's an easy choice it's it's rust never sleeps 10 times out of 10 but if you specify the director's cut a lot more interesting of a debate i i love portions of it i do think it would benefit from having a little more neil young music in it or even devo um i don't know it's one that i think i i can go either way on but I'm probably going to go Rust Never Sleeps today, but I'm also probably going to be one of the few people in your life who are going to force Human Highway upon you. <laughs> so, I th- I'll say this. If we're in a room and both of them are on the table and it's like, you're at my house, we're watching a movie, I'm thrown on Human Highway because I want to watch other people watch this movie. And I, like Human, or Rust Never Sleeps is a great concert, but Human Highway is just, it's unique. There are not too many unique things in this world, and I don't think anyone else can do that movie <laughs> yeah my uh, my dad was not aware it existed he was like well neil young starred in a movie and i was like uh, you would not like it <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Alright, well, we'll wind it up here. Either of you have any final thoughts on Neil Young, Crazy Horse, Devo, Rust Never Sleeps, Human Highway, Gaffin Records. <laughs> um, just to just to check both these out, um, you know, uh, even a casual Neil Young fan, I think, will get a lot out of Rust Never Sleeps. Um, you know, if you're just listening to it, it's the run through some of his best songs, performed really well. And if you're watching it as, like, a piece of filmmaking, I think you'll see, you know, it's... Uh, really really interesting stuff i think deserves to be in the same discussion as yeah um stop making sense the last waltz um yeah this is the this is in that ballpark for sure yeah brianna any closing thoughts i would you know echo bennett's sentiment of you know check both of these out human human highway may not necessarily be for you so use your you know viewer and parental discretion on that one but in general there's a neil young for everybody like he's reinvented himself so many times so you know if you have yet to be exposed to the gospel of neil either do it yourself or you know reach out to your friendly local neighborhood neil dealers and we'd be happy to do it (laughs) on that note what would you say to just in general what is your preferred entry point to neil young i go with after the gold rush because that was like the first one i really got into i think that's just very good neil yeah, I think either after the Gold Rush or everyone knows this is nowhere are probably good starting points. Um, you know, you can kind of after the Gold Rush, you get kind of a run through kind of like everything he does, and then everybody knows this is nowhere. You get kind of uh, an intro to the kind of crazy horse, an intro to his style of guitar playing, um, and I th- I think the title track is just so awesome. Um, it might be like my number one Neil song, honestly. It's the one I'm like most likely to throw on because he's got a lot of like incredible you know 10 minute songs it's nice when he has like a two and a half minute one that just uh, just perfect perfect chorus uh you know just everything you want in a song yeah i feel like a lot of it for me depends on like the person you know if i i know they like one specific thing again there's kind of a neil young for everybody but my go-tos are typically either everybody knows this is nowhere because there's kind of a lot that he does well on there or i've had a lot of success with giving people harvest i think that's that's his most accessible probably because people typically know heart of gold, but you know, that also kind of has its moments that are maybe kind of distant. So I'd say search in your heart and find the Neil that is best for you and start there. (laughs) Just for fun. Last question. Favorite Neil Young song out on the weekend. Okay. Um, either mellow my mind or everybody knows this is nowhere. I like when his voice cracks on Mellow My Mind. Like, yeah. I uh, I think, like, my favorite moment in any Bruce song is when his voice cracks on It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City. Like, I like when you're, like, reminded that somebody's, like, you know, like a person singing to the mic. That's my number two. I'm going to go Cortez the Killer, number one. Favorite, not best. I think that wraps it up. Thank you for listening. This has been Split Picks. But this is probably a good time to announce October Horror is coming up soon. Split Picks has some ideas planned. Last year we looked at the American greats. This year we're flying across the Atlantic. We're going to go look at Italy, see what they have to offer. Bennett, you'll be around for some of that. It's going to be a good time. Whoa. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> well, thank you for listening. What a day. <laughs>